0: This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we need your help to come and, and, and lead us through this sermon. Lord, thank you for uh, the many people that have helped along with the writing of today's sermon, giving incredible input. And Lord, thank you for your spirit leading us in this way. I believe that with all my heart. Lord, I, I want to deliver this uh, sermon first to myself as I'm, I'm working to, to believe this and to be challenged by this and convicted by this and repent through this as, even as I preach it now but that you would do that and be gracious enough to allow that message to be shared beyond just me to the people in this room and that we would all be convicted and challenged and repent and and see how we are to handle others because that's the way that you handled others. Let us follow your example and see what's going on deep into issues of even race in our culture today. Lord, I admit my inability and I acknowledge your superiority And I ask you to come lead us and guide us this morning. Help us from distractions. Allow us to to let go a little bit of what happened last week. And let's forget about what happens at at, at 12 o'clock today. And let's, let's try to be concerned here. Help us be concerned with this text this morning, this moment, April 19th, 2015. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Okay, so so particular context here in Matthew 15, Jesus just saw his disciples out in this incredible storm, just a a vicious storm. He comes walking out to the disciples on the water. Peter, wanting to be like Jesus, does what any disciple would do and say, I want to be like you. Can I walk out on the water and be like you? And Jesus says, come to me. And we saw how Jesus handled the disbelief. How he he handled the doubting of Peter. How he loved him and did not condemn him through it. Loved him graciously through his doubt and his disbelief. And then they hit land and Jesus begins to heal all sorts of different people from the region. But then the Pharisees come from Jerusalem on official order to interrogate, investigate this Jesus character. Who is unapologetically claiming to be Messiah. Messiah. Because his, they're investigating because his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate, which is what good Pharisees and good Jews should do in order to be obedient to our man-made tradition and our laws. So Jesus, why, why doesn't your disciples are defiled because they don't wash their hands? And then Jesus responds, it's not hands that defile a person. You can wash your hands all day long and it doesn't touch your heart. What defiles a person is an issue of sin in the heart. Washing your hands before you eat doesn't make your heart dirty. So Jesus handles this issue of defilement in that sense. But then the issue of defilement comes up again as a Canaanite woman comes up to Jesus whose daughter is being tormented by a demon. And she comes up to Jesus, defilement at work here in the context She's, she's an outsider in context of, of the Jewish race. She's dirty and defiled. And Jesus extends her mercy through radical dialogue. When you read this in, in, in Matthew 15, you see, I there's a lot of going back and forth with Jesus, the disciples, the woman. But he ends up inviting her into his, his family, into his kingdom and, and changing her daughter and, and granting it is whatever she wished. It's incredible. So then this happens, and that's, that just happened. Now here's where we land in our text today. So the issue of defilement and even race, outsiders to the Jews, is at play here. So let's learn together. Look in verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. So he was last in, in Tyre and Sidon. That's where he just, he, he's leaving. And he returns to the Sea of Galilee, Galilee Matthew says, without telling us whether he went on the, the western side, which is the Jewish side, or the eastern side, which is the Gentile side, the non-Jews, the defiled, the dirty, the disgusting, to use Jews' categories for non-Jews in this setting, these, these Pharisees anyway. So he went, we didn't know if he went to the Gentile land or the Jewish land, the Gentile land being unclean and defiled in the eyes of the Jews. So it would be, it'd be difficult for any Jew to be in this particular region of the Gentile side and not feel superior because of the way that they understood color, culture, class, background, race, and so forth. A lot of Jews, like the Pharisees, would even feel like they need to wear a hazmat suit because of the filth of the Gentile region compared to how superior and clean and righteous that they are. But there's a couple hints that we have here in the text that tell us that Jesus did in fact go to the Gentile side instead of the Jew side, and it makes a lot of difference to the story. Well, first of all, as we're going to learn, the people marvel at Jesus' healing and teaching. All right, But we learned earlier that when Jesus fed the 5,000, they no longer marveled. They wanted more food. And when Jesus didn't give them more food, they leave angry and he can do no more miracles or signs there because of their disbelief. Yet here they marvel. That lets us kind of lean towards this probably being the Gentile region. But then... Another thing is the crowds praise the God of Israel, is what, how Matthew records it, which is an odd way of saying that if you're a Jew. You would just call it your God, all right? The God of Jacob. You wouldn't really call it the God of Israel, which, again, if, if you're a Gentile, an outsider, it's a magnificent, beautiful way of describing what's taking place, that you're making much of the God of Israel, of that nation. And then the third, and I believe most decisive point is in Mark 7.31, where the same story account is recorded by Mark, a different disciple, it says that Jesus left that region and went down to the Decapolis, Decapolis, the 10-city region of Greeks, which is Gentiles. So this is why I believe very blatantly that this is in a non-Jew territory, a territory of the Gentiles. So again, this is very important, significant, to the context here. Now Jesus goes into this place, into this region, and he sits down. Now if you're aware of culturally what's at work here, that's typical for teachers to do in this setting, in this culture, in this time, would be to sit down and teach. And I'm sure for three days that Jesus is with these these people, these men and these women from this Gentile region, the Decapolis, I'm sure he did some teaching. Especially with Matthew telling us that he was sitting down we can assume he's teaching. But Matthew doesn't want us to get caught up in the particulars of, of what Jesus taught. Okay? What Matthew wants us to see is what Jesus did, not what he necessarily said. He healed all sorts of people with all sorts of infirmities and disabilities and diseases. Look at how Jesus handles these people. Look in verse 30. And great crowds came to him. That's multitude is, is how some translations uh, give us that, that phrase. Multitudes came to him. Great crowds bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. And I love this phrase. Let's not just gloss over it here. And many others. He gives us four big categories and then says, and there was a whole lot of other diseases, a whole lot of other needy people that they brought to Jesus and they put them at his feet. Now, the way that this is given to us in the English as well as in the Greek, it tells us that there's almost object-like people. Like, you don't, you don't, just, you don't put a person unless they're absolutely incapable of getting there on their own. But to put something, that's really a, almost a non-human type of object that you're just putting somewhere. You put sugar in the pantry, right? But a person doesn't get put in a coffee shop. Right, They go to a coffee shop. Here this speaks to just how ins- insufficient they are to get to Jesus on their own. These people are literally carried to Jesus and put, placed at his feet. And then you see in the text what Jesus does to all these needy people. He heals them. He heals them to the point that the crowds wondered. They were in awe. They were amazed They were taken back at the extent by which Jesus healed them. And Matthew doesn't just say he healed them. Matthew tells us exactly how Jesus healed them, to the extent of his healing. When they saw the mute speaking, that's the extent, the crippled healthy, that's not getting better, that's healthy, that's better, all right, the lame walking Anathetical terms, radical healing, lame walking, and the blind seeing. They wondered when they saw this miracle, these miracles take place, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, Jesus did this back in chapter 14 with the Jews. He had an incredible healing ministry here in Matthew 14, that was in the Jews' territory. This is in the Gentile territory. This is on the other side of the tracks, so to speak, for the Jews. So here Jesus is still in this town of the outsiders and the others, and he heals them all of so many different infirmities. And it says that they saw. They, it was a public display of healing and transformation in people. They were witnesses to this. They saw it, and they glorified God. Much of this can become routine. We can read stories like this, especially in in the typical religious South. If you had an upbringing like mine, where this is just, I mean... You just hear this all the time. You're brought up with all these stories, with all the flannel graph or PowerPoint or pictures or, or whatever. Like, this has just become so routine. And so I want, I want to intentionally, like, kind of blow a whistle and, and, and stop us here and just look at how radical this is. There were people who were unable to walk, they, they were incapable of walking, they were permanently. Bedridden. They were permanently on a mat. They were beggars and they're out playing ball in the backyard. Like they were completely changed. The crippled people were made whole. Limbs that were well formed but unusable were usable. Bones that had been crushed. or or not developed properly, were immediately healed. Fingers that weren't, legs that weren't, were. The hand that wasn't, was. The ear that couldn't, could. It's like these crazy miracles were taking place. Jesus restores these people, heals these people. Muscles are reformed. Nerves are regenerated. Bones and ligaments and tendons are recreated. And knit together again properly. This is beautiful. This is magnificent. Here we see the author of science and medicine and chemistry express his sheer dominance and power over disease and deformity. Here we see the author and the creator of humanity, of what it means to be Human, the author of the human body, the designer of you and me. We see the author and creator of humanity flex his creative superiority over his creation in order for him to be able to display his radical compassion and mercy to those who've been affected by sin and disease and the fall. This is beautiful. This doesn't happen by the power of suggestion but by the power of God. This doesn't happen by the power of illusion or disguise or magic. This isn't a show that's put on like a, like a circus or, or a magician. This is straight up healing through the power of God at work in and through God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, the God-man. But as remarkable as that is, Jesus gives sight to the blind, That was his go-to. That was a miracle that he performed more than any other miracle in his time that's recorded anyway on his time on earth. And we learn in Psalm 146 that only God can give sight to the blind. So if that's true, then what we see Matthew doing here is he's telling you something. He's telling me something. He's telling us that not only did Jesus do all these healings, but he's God, and that's how He does his healings, and it's where he gets his power from, himself. He was present at creation of the world and and present when when these children were formed in the womb and when they breathed their first breath of air, and as he healed them on the spot, he is the beginning and the ending, the alpha, the omega, the author and the finisher. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, performing these crazy miracles, and it's amazing how we can just read through them like it's nothing. Extreme, magnificent, otherworldly things were happening through the power of God, through the power of Jesus. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion. Again, there's a difference between sympathy and compassion. Sympathy is when your heart goes out to somebody that's struggling. And compassion is where your heart and hands go towards someone who's struggling. It's where you don't just think, oh, how pitiful. It's think, oh, how pitiful. I'm going to get engaged. I'm going to change the situation. I'm going to go help. I'm going to follow up. I'm not just going to feel. I'm going to go, ch- I'm going to go help change this situation. And that's the word that's used here. And we're going to see how he changes the situation. He clearly doesn't just have sympathy. It's not in Jesus just to have sympathy over our need. He does something about it. That's what Jesus does. That's what the Savior does. Amen. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Just speaking to their desperate need for nutrition. They probably haven't eaten in a while. You know, the disciples and Jesus—they um, would travel uh, lengthy days into the wilderness or into desolate places or from one region to the other, and so they 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 would pack enough to get them where they're going, or they would go to a place where they can barter or trade or sell or buy. You know, but these people from the Decapolis were just captivated by Jesus. They just they just found themselves just compelled and just going, starving, not even thinking about their need for food just because of it's like my my boys when they play the Wii. It's like they'll go days without eating as long as they can play the Wii because they're so captivated by something that just pulls them in. (laughs) They'll miss all these meals and we'll be like, all right, it's supper time. We didn't have lunch yet. It's like my kids somehow feel like they have to have each meal, so you can't just go to supper. You have to have lunch and then have supper. It's like, no, you kind of missed that when you were playing the Wii. Here these 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 Gentiles, these Greeks, they were so captivated by Jesus that they just totally became so much less concerned with even something as foundational and significant and important as food. And they're just drawn into him and totally losing track of even their own nourishment for the sake of following the bread of life himself, right? And so they've been hungry for days So there's there's a difference here between the the feeding of the 5,000 that happened about 50 verses ago in Matthew and a feeding of the 4,000, which is what's coming up on us right here. The feeding of the 5,000, 50 verses earlier, was to the Jews in the Jewish region, okay? And they they were missing a meal. It was late one afternoon and it was past supper time. You can read this in Matthew they missed a meal. Jesus provided for them and then they wanted to follow him around because after all, man, if he did supper, he can do breakfast and they they were just wanting more food. Here, these Gentiles, these these non-Jews, they follow Jesus for three days, not just six to nine hours. In a Gentile region, Jesus is here with hungry people with these non-Jews. Any food supply that they would have up until this point is gone. It's been consumed. And rather than wait for the disciples to kind of bring their opinion to the table, which we can assume, man, like the disciples frustrate me, but I can't consider myself better than a disciple because I'd probably be, Worse off than them if you wrote about my life. Like, and so their life's on display here in the text, and it's it's easy to point fingers at the disciples. But man, it's it it is frustrating to see how their natural default setting, their natural response is always to dismiss the needy other non-Jews. The woman at the well, right? The woman at the well, she's a Samaritan, and Jesus is saving her. And the disciples get there and they see Jesus talking to a Samaritan, it's like, Hey, you want us to send her away? Just earlier, this woman pleading, earlier in chapter 15, pleading with Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter's being tormented by a demon. Jesus, you want us to send her away? We'll get it. We'll get her out of here. It's like time and time again, the disciples just want to dismiss the needy, dismiss, really, it's a, there's a common thread of, non-Jews. And you don't have to just look at race. You can look at class. You can look at culture. Certainly you can look at color. You can look at background and history. But the point is, people who aren't like them, they always were seeming to want to dismiss. And so Jesus, I, I feel like when you read this, you can kind of sense this. Jesus is reading their mail, and he knows what they're going to say before they're going to say it. And so it's like he's, he's getting there before they get there, and he, he says, I know that you're going to, to want to dismiss the crowds. That's not an option. I'm not going to dismiss the needy crowds. I'm not willing to let them go hungry. They might not make it home. They're so hungry. I'm not going to dismiss them. And the disciples here, they, they seem to always want to dismiss this type of person but as we're going to learn here, and as we've learned even this far in Matthew, Jesus is with these disciples on mission, and he helps make all the difference in the way that they handle others and how much they learn through him helping others, even with the disciples who don't always get it, which gives us great hope. And so it's, it's as if this happens often enough that Jesus has to develop a policy, and he's like, all right, we're not going to dismiss people around here. Hey guys, you got me like 12. Look at me. I've got you If they're needy if they're dirty if they're annoying if they're not like you If they interrupt your daily routine or how you think our journey should go We're not dismissing them if there's any way possible to help them. That's our policy It's the exception when we fail to do so The rule is if given a chance to show compassion and change your situation. We're going to Got it Verse 33, the disciples said to him, do what you did when you fed the Jews. You got this, Jesus. No. My Bible doesn't say that either. The Disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread? I mean, we're in a desolate place. How are we going to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. You see, it's like they already... I feel like they had awareness of what was going on because they didn't just answer the question about bread, but they answered the question about fish. And so I believe that they were aware of what was going on and how he had power over this. Because after all, again, 50 verses earlier, they asked the same question where Jesus fed somewhere between, it was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So it was somewhere around 18 to 25,000 people, Bridgestone Arena at capacity. He healed those people with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. But this is different. That was for the Jews. That was for my people. This is for the Gentiles. I wonder if they simply don't want to assume Jesus' power here because they'd honestly rather not show mercy to those people. That they didn't want it to be their idea. That they kind of wanted Jesus to kind of gloss over and just kind of of see how he played things off. But look at Jesus' response. He says, what do you have? So Jesus is going to use what the disciples have, their own food, to feed the people that they're struggling to have compassion with, whose natural default setting isn't to show compassion to. And as much as we don't want it to be the case, God is calling us individually and corporately as a church to work through this text together and to see what it looks like to be obedient to him That sometimes just going to cost us something. And we may reach people that we might not look eye to eye with on all issues. They might be different. They might be hard to love. They might be hard to sympathize with. But we're called to love and to be like Jesus regardless of color, class, or culture. But we get to be with Jesus as he redeems people and as he changes as He changes us. I mean, all too often, man... Every single time I've ever done anything to show mercy, I learn more and I change more than anyone who I'm extending mercy to. When I I moved to Nashville, just a little confession here, when I moved to Nashville, I felt like I was going to help reach some of the homeless and the outsiders, so to speak. Man, I have been taught more from homeless people than homeless people have ever learned from me. I mean, there's a gentleman who's in here almost every single Sunday and sits in the back corner. He's not here today. That's my brother, Ernest. He's been with us for five years, He's taught me more than, (coughs) radically more than I've ever taught him. And this is the joy that we have of changing as we see God change others. We get to experience the same transformation too. That's a joy of following Jesus' mission. The result of the disciples being pulled along by Jesus here is that people experience satisfaction in Jesus. And they worship God. Like this is beautiful. Look at verse 35. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, Jesus took seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan, which is the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. Now this may seem like meaningless repetition by Matthew of the same story 50 verses earlier, but Matthew and Jesus seem to have incredible intentionality here with giving us seemingly the same story. In feeding the 5,000, all right, if that was a foretaste of the Jews' messianic banquet, okay, then the story indicates that the Gentiles are to share in Israel's ultimate blessing. And this is what the mother got from our sermon last week. The mother of the daughter understood that, that the Gentiles had a place at the table with the Jews in the kingdom that Jesus was coming to inaugurate, that he was inaugurating through his work. The details of the story are different, but the essence of the story, the, the essentials are the same. Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples knew that, that other non-Jews would be able to have a share in the hope of the Messiah, and that they would be around the throne that, that Revelation tells us through John, the apostle, that there will be people from all tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations around the throne and not just the Jews. And so Jesus takes his disciples on a mission trip of mercy, allowing them to serve others as an extension of his own compassion and heart for all people, not just Jews. That's what I see going on here in the text. It wasn't just a miracle of feeding a lot of people. It came right on the heels of the disciples struggling with having a kingdom mindset instead of just a class mindset. So even right here, we need to be reminded of something. Not a single one of us would be in this room Would the invitation to know God. Not a single one of us would be in this room if the invitation to know God and the opportunity to see Jesus for who he is all right, wasn't at work in the heart of Jesus in this story right here. And in many stories, were Jesus not displaying this type of heart to outsiders, you and I would not be in this room understanding God and understanding Jesus the way that we do. Another way of putting it to be blunt is: white brothers and sisters, we're not the Jews in the story. Other non-Jews, other races in the room, we're not the Jews in the story. We're the outsiders. We're with all other non-Jew races, non-Jewish races, standing as defiled outsiders, enemies separated from God, and Jesus shows us compassion. We're the crowd who are non-Jews being brought into the kingdom because Jesus is shattering the religious superiority of the Jewish Pharisees and offering mercy to whosoever will. And so you have hope and I have hope. This is is what's going on here in this text. And it's amazing how just being brought up as a white boy in the South, how I always, my natural inclination is to read myself as the good guys in the text or the Jews or the the insiders. We must all work to see the, the cosmic reality. We're outsiders, all right? It's not the white privilege that makes us inside. I'm just speaking to my own race here. We have to sympathize and break through our personal history in order to lose our pride and our arrogance and entitlement and see that we're all needy at when it comes to being at the foot of the cross and that we're all outsiders being offered grace, radical grace to be called Christian. And to experience the saving grace of God. And understanding that and living that out practically will change our city. It will change our families. It will change our communities. Culturally, the barrier was magnificent between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Jesus broke so many cultural taboos just to be standing there. Just to be staying there, he's saying all sorts of things about what he thought about different races. Jews, Pharisees wouldn't go there except to express condemnation and Jesus goes there and shows mercy and grace and compassion and feeds 20,000 people. That Yes, praise God, that's huge. He teaches these precious people for three days and he heals them. He heals thousands of Gentiles. We can't just gloss over that. This has to challenge us. We have to see Jesus crossing culture, class, and color barriers to go express love and generosity and compassion and mercy and grace to people that other people would not. We can't just, we we can't go there without it convicting us and challenging us. We can't read that and think, yeah, that's what I do. No. It's not even the best missionary in the room has more to grow and more to learn in this way. This has to convict us and challenge us and change us and call us to do the same. Because the fact is, is you can't stay in your comfort zone of life and be like Jesus in this story. You can't. You have you have to break out with whatever is routine and safe in your life. Jesus broke out of heaven and came on to the earth, entered human history, experienced suffering and sin, just like we do, except without sin, so that he could be our representative and our substitute to offer us grace in spite of sinning a lot so that he could save us and make us insiders. Radical sacrifice. We all have more to do in what it looks to be an obedient missionary. None of us have arrived. Let's continue to place ourselves strategically in areas where we have to depend on the Holy Spirit to be our courage and and our confidence as we enter into hard areas all around the world and across the street so that we can show Jesus to people who, who might not be just like us. Quite frankly, Jesus is unwilling for the people of Nashville to go to hell. He's going to redeem people in Nashville. I believe it, I know it, and I pray for it. The question then is, will we play a part in this radical redemption in Nashville of people in our city? Family access, I want us to be part of that. I want to be part of a a movement of God in our city, in our region, that results in people from all sorts of different backgrounds and races glorifying God and praising Jesus. I don't want to settle for anything less. I don't want us to drift to any other destination. This, This must be what we're looking for. I mean, having a great gathering and having wonderful on-mission access communities, that's great, but they're all pointing and all working to something greater than just a gathering and a scattering. It's seeing lost people become Christians and outsiders become insiders and orphan become adopted and enemies become children, resulting in our city, recognizing Jesus as King and, and, and living in light of that reality and glorifying the God of Israel. I mean, this this is the point of why our church exists. It's the point of, 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 of everything in our life as Christians. The grace and the compassion of Jesus that's seen here in this story, it clearly shows how he meets the needs of the needy, the undeserving, and the outsiders. How he was absolutely unwilling to let them go hungry be reminded of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the grand story of redemption, we see the compassion and grace of Jesus and his father clearly seen as Jesus provides for us himself as our wrath bearer, wrath absorber, propitiation, and our perfection and our salvation while he saves us, we who are needy and outsiders and sinful and dead and undeserving God-haters. He saves us. He's absolutely unwilling to allow us to go hungry, to go wanting. He longs to satisfy us with Himself, to satisfy us with the restored relationship with His Father, which is our greatest need. He's unwilling to allow us to remain eternally crippled and blind and lame and mute. He wants us to live and thrive eternally and not be limited by the sin that we carry. He came. To bear that himself and receive the judgment for it himself, so that we can be healed, so that we can be satisfied, knowing that there is no healing, there is no satisfaction that is, can be compared with the healing and satisfaction that Jesus does for us in redeeming us. Now, as recipients of this salvation and people who are grasping and understanding more and more the gospel. This must inform and motivate us to love and serve others regardless of cultural or racial differences. And to fail to do so is to fail, I believe, to understand the gospel foundationally as we forget that we're outsiders being graciously brought in, being shown radical grace and forgiveness. How can we then not respond by showing radical grace and forgiveness to any barrier that may be there? As recipients of this satisfying salvation, we are commissioned as missionaries, which Christians are are missionaries, all Christians are missionaries, okay? Let's drill that in our minds. We are commissioned as missionaries to go and show this grace and this mercy and compassion to all, regardless of their social status, the color of their skin, or the size of their bank account. This is what we're commissioned to do. To summarize and conclude here, just 50 verses earlier, the disciples and Jesus faced the same problem. A huge crowd full of hungry people in a desolate, barren, resourceless place without food, and Jesus feeds them, he satisfies them. When the disciples, when, when Jesus states to his disciples, to the second crowd of of feeding the non-Jews, the Gentiles. They respond, where are we going to get the food? But Jesus is with them. He's going to help them. Watch. I feel like they should have known that the power of Jesus was not limited by what we have or don't have and that his power to provide isn't limited based upon someone's color, class, or culture. Perhaps the Pharisees were afraid to ask about the food situation because Jesus sent away the Jews because they kept wanting food. Perhaps the disciples were afraid of of looking beyond the messianic meaning of the Jews. Regardless, I feel wholeheartedly that the disciples were like many people in our city and country today. They felt that it would be one thing for Jesus to heal the Gentiles and quite another thing for the the Gentiles to be invited into their life to where they had to be reconciled, around their personal supper table. You see, it seems like we trust Jesus to redeem anybody. Regardless, Jesus can redeem people. But if we're honest, it's quite another thing for Jesus to invite others and to bring others into our life, into our personal affairs, our churches and our dinner tables. It seems that color and class and cultural differences that are prevalent in our city, that we've limited Jesus to these things instead of seeing him reconcile in spite of these things. It's like Jesus can redeem eternally, but the barriers of, of color, class, culture, background, history, He's kind of limited to reconcile us to one another. He can do it to himself, but not across the lines horizontally. It's like, do we have a paradigm for Jesus being able to do anything? Do we have a paradigm, or, or do we have a, 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 an idea, do we have the framework to see Jesus reconcile people to himself and to one another despite history? I mean, if we truly wish to live out something historic, And radical in our lifetime in Nashville, we must remove any limitation that we ever place on God and who He wants to reconcile and how He wants to reconcile them. My hope is that we as a church would would plead with God in prayer to give us faith, radical faith in His goodness, power, and grace. That we believe he can save anybody, regardless of how rich or poor they may be, no matter if they're red, yellow, black, or white, whether they live in a mansion or under the Jefferson Bridge, regardless of how much money they have or they don't have. That we don't put these limitations, that God can do whatever. He can pull somebody out of a ditch and make them a church planter. It's like, just because you see someone on the, on the side of the road that seems to have lost all mental capacity, that doesn't mean that Jesus is limited to that. He could, He could make that person the most incredible missionary our culture's ever seen. Or do we bypass them as if it's hopeless? We don't need these limitations on what God can do. Otherwise, we are like the disciples who just need to dismiss these certain people because they're never going to get it. We have these limitations of what he can do. Nashville's not, Nashville's not tired of people believing that God can do radical things. Nashville hasn't, hasn't met the quota for that. Nashville's tapped out and met the quota for people who believe that God is, he can do amazing things up until this point. But then reconciling people from different backgrounds, that's, that's another thing. His hands are rather tied. I don't think so. Every single one of us have a natural bent to limit God in how he reconciles certain people. Where we have, we struggle with how he reconciles other people. We've got to rid ourselves of this thinking. My hope and my prayer is that, that we, much like a little five-year-old looking at Superman, and we just think, man, he can do everything. My hope is that we look at Jesus that way, regardless of someone's background, color, class, culture, history, disability, infirmity, regardless of what it might be, that we don't put a limitation. That We think, oh, man, Jesus has got this. He can do anything with this person. That we remove these limitations, the racial limitation, the class limitation, the cultural limitation. And we just think, man, this is an opportunity for God to flex and And for us to repent of our limitations that we're putting on him, let's just believe that he can. Regardless of what the situation might be, he can. The disciples were faced here with their faithlessness and the power and goodness of Jesus. Yet I find wonderful hope here in the fact that Jesus does not dismiss his disciples. He doesn't send them home. After they they fail to get it once again as they're slow to offer grace and mercy, he doesn't dismiss them Rather, he he keeps them, he pulls them to himself, he loves them, he includes them, he trains them, he teaches them, and he sends them. And then he allows the disciples to use their own resources to serve and provide food for the Gentiles. He takes what they have in order to serve the Gentiles a meal. He wanted to show compassion on the Gentiles and tenderness to the disciples as they offer compassion on the Gentiles. He taught them a lesson. He said, I'm reaching all sorts of people, and I want to use you and your resources to do it. So the question is, we consider this even for us today, is will we stay back and away from others? Will we miss out on Jesus miraculously showing compassion and redeeming others? Or will we be some of the disciples that he's pulling along? Will access be part of the disciples that he's pulling along to participate in this radical work of saving people from all tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations, even here in our own city. I mean, I see moments like this, this sermon today with the Axis and last week's sermon here at the Axis. I see moments like this where we're not being sent away, but Jesus is bearing with us and he's teaching us and he's helping us understand rightly what our mission is. Let's be part of this sort of mission. Let's follow Jesus into conversations and opportunities as he reaches other people from all sorts of history and see him change us and others along the way. I mean, I want to see Nashville wonder at the goodness of God through Jesus. I want to see Nashville glorify God. I mean, can you imagine, can you daydream what that would look like if our wonderful city would understand Jesus and God the way that the Bible wants us to. Not if this is going to happen, but when Nashville glorifies God and understands who Jesus is. Let's pray for this. Let's exist for this. Let's love each other and others, even outside these walls, in order to see this happen. Let me pray for us as Pastor Jacob comes for communion. Jesus, thank you for bearing with the disciples. Thank you for teaching them. Thank you for teaching us. Lord, I do pray for this sort of movement of mercy and compassion across all barriers. Lord, where people get a chance to see you and hear you and experience you. Lord, they get to feast on on you and your truth and your goodness. Lord, help us be a part of that, that movement, Lord, that... That, you, that I believe you desire for Nashville and that you're, you're going to accomplish in some way here in the city. Lord, I want us as a church to collectively be considered faithful disciples who can participate in your redemption of this region, of this city. Lord, help us individually cry out to you for understanding in these things and individually pursue you in Scripture and individually pray and and seek ways of of trusting you where where we would naturally put limitations on you. And Lord, you allow us individually as we get stronger individually that we will become stronger even corporately together, collectively, in community, as a church. And that we would become a a radical force of of your redemption in our city. Lord, that would be beautiful. (laughs) Lord, let us not just settle for a Sunday or a Wednesday. But Lord, let us be a part of something that epic, that that marvelous, that historic. Lord, let us us play on the field of your redemption. Lord, let us run around as you score touchdown to touchdown to touchdown. Let us run around with you experiencing what it's like to see people changed by you. God, do whatever it takes to get us there. Please bless this church. In Christ's name, amen.